my favorite quote from my chat today with Patty Talley and Pam Dosher was, if it ain't broken, break it. We got into a little bit of everything. Dogwood Village is a very, very prepared facility that did not have one single COVID uh, infection amongst its residential population in the last year. So talking about how they prepared for that, talking about their strategic planning meeting and going in, getting in the weeds. What are the ideas that end up in the parking lot versus the ones that they decide to implement and moving around into some really innovative programs that they are working on, names that they've invented, ones that they borrowed from other facilities. If you like to be prepared, organized, and want to improve your strategic planning meeting, this episode is really going to be a hit. I hope you appreciate my conversation with Patty and Pam as much as I did. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy-Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got a great episode in store for you. Today, I'm joined by Patty Talley, Customer and Community Relation Director at Dogwood Village, and Pam Dosher, Administrator and Executive Director at Dogwood Village. Patty, in her role as Community Relations Manager, was at the forefront of the fight against COVID-19 from the get-go, saying Dogwood was trying its best to outsmart the disease, a disease that they saw coming all the way back in January of 2020, and she has over 40 years of experience working at Dogwood. Pam has over 40 years of experience in the healthcare industry and recently came out of retirement to serve as the interim administrator and today the executive director of Dogwood. Both of you are extremely admirable. I appreciate having you on the program, and I can't wait to go through so much of these topics with you today. Patty, Pam, welcome to LTC Heroes. Thank you. Pam, to get started, I just want to start off some personal icebreaker questions, and then we're going to dive into COVID, strategic planning, sensitivity training. And I know both you and Patty have a lot of innovative programs that you've already implemented since you're coming back as interim administrator, but you also have a lot on the forefront. So today we're going to get into a lot, but to dive right in, just to get to know you, Pam, do you have any uncommon hobbies that you love? I love to ride motorcycles. Whoa, I didn't expect that. That's the first (laughs) motorcycle answer that I've got on this. Are there any (laughs) lessons about this hobby that you feel that could be applied in other situations? Safety. Safety in riding a motorcycle is imperative and safety in our business is imperative. What's the most recent non-long-term care book that you have read, Pam? I just finished a book by Danielle Steele and it was called Within the Dark. All right. Now that the ice is broken, let's move into some long-term care related questions. Pam, if you could change anything in long-term care industry with just a snap of a finger, what would it be? It would be the reimbursement from our government, from Medicaid, are reimbursed at a lower rate generally than what our costs are. And the expectation based upon the regulatory environment is very high but we're not getting the funds to do what we need to do. We do a great job. We provide great care. But if we got the funds to cover our costs, we could even do more. In your career, Pam, what's been the biggest change you've witnessed in long-term care? 
the acuity of the residents. When I first started in this business, the residents that we had in the nursing facility were more like what is in assisted living facilities today. The residents in the nursing facility today are much heavier care. Their acuity level is much higher, and we're seeing a lot more dementia, Alzheimer's residents as well. I don't want to turn you into a prediction agent, but Pam, what do you think will be the next biggest change if you have a gut feeling? That the acuity level of nursing facilities will be even higher, that we will start admitting directly from the ED versus from being admitted in the hospital if we can get the three-day hospital stay waived completely. And we would be taking people that are sicker and sicker, almost Mm. like a subacute facility. Mm. Pam, I'll ask you this question first, and then I'm going to ask Patty as well to bring her on. And this is a little section of the program that I call Mentor Me or Who's Your LTC Hero? Because I've had so many mentors in my life, and I've had mentors in long-term care, going back to the first podcast, Jerry Selig and uh, KJ Page, and just a lot of lovely, lovely leaders in this industry who've introduced me to how to improve it. If you had to name one important LTC hero, Pam, in your life that's influenced the way you deliver care, who might that be? That would probably be Sandra Darnell. And what did Sandra do? Sandra was the administrator at the facility where I first started. I was the business office manager at the time. And just watching her and observing her in her role as administrator helped me decide that I wanted to go in that direction Mm. and get my administrator's license. She was very focused on resident care, but also on ensuring accountability with the staff, which was really very important. Patty? Do you have an LTC hero that, whether they worked in long-term care or not, that has influenced the way that you deliver care? I do. I work with Vernon Baker, who's still an administrator for 16 years here at Dogwood Village, and he was all about taking care of the patients. The patients come first, and the kindness and compassion is what the patients need. So he's already started my whole sensitivity approach to Dogwood Village. Well, cheers to both Sandra and Bernie. Those are neat stories. Thank you for sharing. Now, I know that something happened that was very unique dogwood in the last 16 or 18 months. You all went through COVID without having one resident who's infected with COVID. Is that accurate? That is correct. So let's start with you, Patty. Do you remember the first time you heard about COVID? And do you remember what the first conversation was when you all started taking it seriously and getting prepared? We started hearing about COVID probably back in January of 2019. And then we kept hearing more about other countries. And then we started planning ahead, thinking, well, we're going to need extra supplies. We're going to need face masks. We're going to need gowns, gloves. So we started ordering those supplies immediately, started stockpiling the best we could. Pam came in in March, and she took the lead on that and started doing the same thing. And Pam, so you came in in March, right when it was full-blown, everyone was aware of how serious it was. What brought you to Dogwood at that point? I was contacted by one of the board members. They were in need of an administrator, and um, I had just retired, and I was going to do interim administrator work anyway, so they said, would you be willing to be interim administrator, which I said, sure, and then after 45 days, I decided I was going to take it permanently, so that's what brought me to Dogwood. 
And I sense that there's a decent percentage of humans, no matter what industry they're in, if they had seen what was happening with COVID in March and they just retired, they might take that sabbatical year off before they come in. What was it about either your personality or Dogwood's offer or Dogwood or where you were in life that you said, I'm going to take the hardest year, 40 years into my career, and I'm, let's do this? I'm not the kind of person just to sit back on my haunches and watch. And I felt very strongly that taking this role that would give me an opportunity to try to make sure that protected the residents of Dogwood Village. And I wanted to be a part of that. COVID was extreme. Obviously, we all know that it has been extreme. And we actually closed down the facility a week before we got the requirement to do so from the CDC and CMS, just because I felt very strongly that we needed to prevent access from the community because we didn't know what was going on out there. Did you have any backlash when you closed down a week early? No. Well, families were not happy, but at the same time, they were supportive because they understood the reason behind it, that we were doing it to protect their loved ones. And Patty, you mentioned in one of our first chats that about 80% of you all's success with COVID was preparedness and skill and planning, and about 20% was luck. Can you tease out what that 80% is in skill and how you, I guess the follow-up question is, is that skill part of your system? Like in two years from now, if we have something similar, like a power grid failure, kind of like what Dallas had, or if you had a tornado in Kansas, does the same skill set turn into a system that makes you all more prepared for two years down the road? I think so. We, we did immediately started training and retraining our staff about infection control practices, social distancing, and keeping your mask on, and that saved us a lot of headaches. And we also educated as much as we could. Hmm. In terms of supplies, were you in the same situation as most facilities around the U.S., or were you more prepared? I feel like we were more prepared. Pam probably speak to that, too. We took the lead early on and started getting as much as we could early. We were very prepared, and we were very fortunate that our central supply person was a little bit of a hoarder. And so we had quite a bit of supply already here. And then we were able to get on a list to have a continuous supply sent in. Is there any point, Pam, where you weren't nervous? Were you ever able to sleep a full eight hours like you did maybe in October of 2019? Or were you just nervous the entire time? The anxiety was always there. It still is because we're not totally out of the crunch. When we started getting the vaccines, I felt a little more relaxed because we, with our residents, we're at between the two buildings, we're at 95% of the residents are vaccinated. And with our staff, we're at about 78%. So when that happened, I was, felt like I could relax a little bit, but you still have to be on your toes. Is it fair to say, Pam, that you didn't have a pandemic protocol or a pandemic white paper or full steps, because this is way beyond infection control program, I think, for severity. And it's just, you know, how fast it was moving and our lack of understanding. If you didn't have anything, do you have anything today? Well, we did have an emergency preparedness plan, which we're all required to have. And part of that emergency preparedness plan, it talks about pandemics. So we did have something in place. However, 
based upon our experience and what we've been through, we have certainly added to that and added COVID-19 as a specific entity within that emergency preparedness plan. And then we had to add Ebola a couple of years ago, but we have definitely streamlined and finessed the emergency preparedness plan even more so than what it was because of the pandemic. And going back to the previous chat or subject about you coming out of retirement, you had heard of Dogwood before you accepted as interim administrator. Is that accurate? That's correct. I actually had been aware of Dogwood since I almost began my career. It was at that time, Orange County Nursing Facility. My preceptor for me getting my administrator's license, it was actually the administrator here and again, Orange County Nursing Facility at the time. I know your professional career as an interim administrator didn't last long, kind of as a designated hitter in baseball terms. How would you explain what's the difference? Why did you decide interim was okay for 45 days, but I kind of missed the full-on grind? It was very thought-provoking because I had retired and was retired for about 10 weeks total. And I felt like I was burned out when I retired. However, I was living away from home, basically. I would go to work on Monday and come home on Friday. And so being back home after retired, I was able to relax. And then I looked at Dogwood when I, they reached out to me. And I just felt like I had a great team when I came in here, a great facility with a great reputation. and. I felt like I really wasn't ready to retire 100%. So why not take it full time? And will you ever go back to be an interim or was your 45 day stint enough for you to realize that next retirement you're done? No, I don't know. That's hard to say. (laughs) I don't know when I'm going to retire. It could be, you know, another five, eight years. So it would just depend on when I retired. Staff burnout is a really big issue, not only in the last year, Pam, it seems like it's been going on for quite some time in long-term care. Can you relate to it? Did you have a little bit of burnout? And if you can relate to it, does it affect the way that you address staff burnout at Dogwood, whether it be through retention or recruitment or employee satisfaction? Yes, I did feel like it affected me. And again, I'm not so sure if it was work as much as it was living away from home that I was burned out on. But I have always been very focused on staff burnout because I think it's important that people have a work-life balance. And if we don't have a work-life balance, then you are going to get burned out if it's more work than personal life. And so I strongly suggest with my directors that if they find somebody that seems to be operating on at their normal level or seems to be a little cranky or whatever, you know, to look at burnout and discuss it. And we have done some in-servicing. I'm pretty sure we did some in-servicing last year on burnout just because of the state of affairs with COVID and not being able to, you know, have visitors and all that kind of stuff. Patty, I know that you have a number of direct reports and the way that you train them and do in-service and work on burnout is a regular concern of yours and it's a priority of yours. Even though you've, you've worked your entire career at Dogwood, how do you go about learning new angles for improving staff 
burnout and staying on top of things. Just Googling it on CMS, I don't think is the, probably the best way that you're going about implementing. How do you stay innovative on top of this issue? You know, that is one of the things that we teach upon orientation process. We talk a whole section about staff burnout. So what I do at each session is I talk to the people in the session and say, what do you do for yourself when you get tired of burnout? So I get all kinds of ideas from the people that I'm working with, like massages, getting your nails done, getting your hair done, taking walks, just a vacation, talking to a coworker, watching a good movie, all kinds of ideas from the people that I'm doing orientation with. And I share all those ideas, each orientation with the new folks to come in. And Pam, related kind of a, a close cousin of burnout is, and I think that your words were, you'd heard of Dogwood. And in our previous conversation, you said that you knew that Dogwood had a good team and it was easy for you to want to work with them, not only as interim, but eventually as executive director. I guess I don't want to say from a business point of view, but like, what are the KPIs or what are the tangibles that when you show up as executive director, you see as great team? Like, how would you explain that on paper if you were to move on somewhere else or you were to explain how great your facility is to a peer of yours in the industry? In my mind, a great team is multifaceted. One, as each individual director has their own department, that they run it without me constantly having to look over their shoulder. Because I feel like if I have to look over somebody's shoulder consistently, then why do I need them? I don't have that situation in this building. All the directors are self-motivated and take care of their departments completely. I'm here for support and guidance, but I don't have to stand over their shoulders. That's one thing. The other thing is that the team here at Dogwood is very collaborative, very supportive, very transparent, and works together as a team. If there's a project that needs to be done and say it's activities that is doing the project, it's not just activities that does it, but IT gets involved, maintenance gets involved, housekeeping, nursing, everybody gets involved to support each other. And those are, in my mind, components of a great team because they are supportive of each other as well as their departments. And they're good leaders. They're not, I don't believe in iron fist leadership. I believe in setting an example and being a leader that way. And all of my directors are good leaders from that perspective. They roll up their shirt sleeves and get in there and do what they have to do to make sure the care for these residents is where it needs to be. I'm not 100% sure how to ask the question, so you'll have to bear with me as I find my words. But I speak to a lot of management leaders in long-term care, and culture is an ongoing topic. Unfortunately, I speak to a lot of great leaders on this podcast. So culture is not usually a problem, at least after they've got into the climate for a while. But how do you turn culture into something that's systemic so that if you go on a three-month RV camping trip with your husband, Pam, or you decide that you're going to retire for a year, how do you make sure that that great team and that great culture stays around? Well, I think it's buy-in by your team members and setting the expectations and holding people to certain standards and accountability. If we have a methodology for day-to-day operations and performance and I'm gone for a month or two and that methodology goes down the drain, then I haven't done my job. 
Hmm. So in my mind, I work very closely with all my team members. We have a daily team meeting. And part of that is for communication, but also it is to reinforce what our day-to-day operations are about so that I can feel comfortable. And I do feel very comfortable leaving because I know, again, going back to my directors, know their departments, they run their departments, and then if need be, they collaborate and work together to get accomplish a goal. You both kind of come off as a very, very organized duo. When we've chatted in the past and I've asked for some follow-up, I'm pretty sure I get everything within 15 minutes. So I think that the way that you probably organize your strategic planning meeting or your innovative programs, some that you've done in COVID and summer that are being rolled out soon, are also organized. Pim, can you speak to where your natural leadership abilities come from and then also the learned ones? Do you have anyone who's taught you to be organized and make sure that that is part of your strategic leadership? I attribute my organization to, I guess, growing up, my mother insisted on, you know, everything in its place. And I'm very much the same way. I can't stand to have a messy desk. I feel like I just can't work that way. And I have learned over the years just by watching and listening and going to education programs, different components of leadership. I've read a lot of books about leadership, and I feel like I was actually going to be a teacher in my original career plan. I was going to be a physical education teacher. And so I kind of felt like that component of leadership is built in to that kind of role as being a teacher. So at a young age, I guess I started thinking that way from the leadership perspective, but I've learned a lot from just watching and talking to other people and trying different things. You know, I'm not afraid to try something new. I'm a planner. I believe that to accomplish the goals, we have to plan them out and you have to be organized to be able to do that and not over plan or overextend. It might be a myth, but I believe that there is a stereotype out there. The more organized you are, the less innovative you are. I know that you defy that perception. One of the innovative programs that you had in COVID had to help some of your residents with wearing a mask, those that had dementia. And I want to touch on that for a moment. But then you have a a lot of other innovative ideas that I would like to dive into. You have a restorative sleep program that's coming out, a personalized medication system, angel rounds, and news linen room. First, before we get into those, can you speak to how do you stay innovative when sometimes organization makes people not be forward thinking? Well, I've always had a belief that if it ain't broke, break it. Not furniture, not equipment, but processes. And if I keep that thought in my brain that I'm always looking for something to improve upon. And the innovative idea that we came up with relative to the the residents with the mask issue, we did brainstorming. We're trying to figure out how can we protect these residents that won't keep their masks on. And it was fun and exciting. And that's to me what innovation is about. And yes, I'm organized, but yeah, I broke the mold on that because I love to be very innovative and I love change. I love to work toward improvement on a consistent basis. So I'll put in the show notes, a picture of how you all were innovative with helping your dementia residents with wearing a mask. But 
Can you, first of all, explain how you did it? What's the setup? And then the follow-up question is, how long did it take you to come up? Was this something that came up in a 20-minute morning breakfast chat? Did you guys think on it for five days and it was a CNA who brainstormed and came up with it? So can you speak to that specific, how the setup was and then how it came about? We had a COVID meeting. We had a COVID team and we had a COVID meeting and we were talking about how can we keep the masks on the residents with dementia that constantly take them off. And we were sitting there talking about, well, we can put it on their chair. We can put it up so it's always available. We put it in front of them. We can put it around their neck, but they still not going to keep it on. And so I said, what if we had some sort of a barrier that we could put around them? And how about a clothes rack that folds, makes like an L shape, and we can put a clear shower curtain on it. And so the residents can see, and we can put a couple of those around them so that they're still protected from other residents coming up to them. And we don't have to worry about whether they have their mask on or not. And so everybody's like, oh, wow, that's a great idea. So I immediately went online, ordered, I can't remember how many at first, but maybe 10 of the clothes racks and 20 shower curtains because you need to have two because it bent. And we tried it and it worked. It was just amazing. <laughs> and you won an award, right? Yes, we did. We won the Health Quality Innovation Award for the state of Virginia. It's a beautiful story. And I, I'm sure that there's some listeners that have their jaw dropped uh, like I was the first time you mentioned it and, and when you sent the picture over last week. You also have some innovative programs that you all are working on and part of your bigger planning meetings. Could you speak to whichever one most excites you? You got snoozing room, angel, rounds, medication system, and restorative sleep program. Well, right now we are starting the personalized medication system. We have met with the pharmacy and we're very excited about this because it's the initial step is med consolidation. So we basically end up with only two med pass times throughout the day versus 17. And there will be outliers that you have to pass that medication at a certain time or whatever. But for most of the routine medications, they will be passed only twice a day. So that frees up the nurse to be more of a nurse and focus on patient care than just a pill pusher. So I'm real excited about that. That kind of plays into, segues into our restorative sleep program, which is very exciting because as we all know, if you get a good night's sleep, you feel better, your health is better, you eat better, you're more social, you don't have the behaviors and the attitudes typically. So our goal is to work on the restorative sleep program and minimize noise, look at lighting. There's 10 different components that interrupt sleep, and we're going to go through each one of those and figure out what we need to change and do differently. And one of them being the medication pass in the middle of the night where we're waking people up to give them medication, that will stop. So people will be able to sleep through the night. So that's how the personalized medication system and the restorative sleep program kind of go hand in hand. Um, I want to pause on those two. Since you've worked in other facilities, are these two programs very common across the industry and Dogwood is just a little bit of a late implementer? And if that's not the case, how did you think about bringing them into Dogwood? They are not very common across the state. The 
personalized medication program is being looked at more, but it's still not real common. I actually started that at my last facility, as well as with, we piloted, we were part of a pilot for the state for the restorative sleep program. We, I was with Riverside Health System and their group that works on getting grants had gotten a grant. And so two facilities within Riverside piloted the restorative sleep program. So when I came here, I was so impressed with it and loved it that I wanted to bring it to Dogwood. And I love how you're borrowing from around the community. And it's something that I really appreciate from all the leaders that I've talked to on the podcast is borrowing from previous jobs, calling peers and learning to see, you know, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can talk to someone who's done it before. Now you have two other programs. Would you speak quickly to those? Yes, the Snoozeland Room, that is a room that is designed for calming residents down, particularly with dementia residents, that when they start to have behaviors or in anticipation of behaviors like sundowning, we would put them in the Snoozeland Room. The Snoozeland Room has different types of sensory stimulation and calming, and it could be a lava lamp. It could be aromatherapy, a specialized chair, fiber optics that they can touch and feel. And so we are in the process of working with a company to help us design our snoozling room based upon the space that we have mm-hmm. and very much looking forward to having that and getting that in place as well. The other program... Angel Rounds, I think is what you mean. Angel Rounds. I implemented that in two facilities. And basically what that is, we assign each director and other managers a set of rooms. And it's their responsibility to visit those rooms a minimum of three times a week. And in their visitation, They speak with the resident, they look at the room from a surveyor's eyes and make sure that everything's in place and all the good things that surveyors look for. How did you hear about this when you first implemented it in your previous two facilities? I just created it. Did you create the name and when you say it to your peers, does it resonate? Do you have friends that have copying it? Yes, I did come up with the name and yes, other facilities, other Some of my peers have implemented it because they said, wow, that sounds like a great idea. And, you know, the focus is to eliminate any concerns before they happen or be immediately responsive if there is a concern. And the people assigned to the rooms develop relationships with those residents. And then once a month, they call the responsible party and talk to the responsible party to make sure that they don't have any concerns. And when we first implemented this, both of the, my previous facilities, we had no complaints called into the state, which to me was a good measurement of success of the program. That's a good KPI. Patty, I know that you've spent all of your career at Dogwood, but you and I were the first ones to speak maybe back in March or April. And you, I hope you don't take this as condescending, you were giddy happy for me to talk to Pam because you were so excited about her joining Dogwood. And now I can understand why, because her knowledge and forward thinking is contagious. From a leadership role, what do you like most about working with Pam? 
she's very consistent and she's very appreciative. Always thanks us for doing a great job. And I think positive reinforcement goes along with, with employees for sure. It's just a privilege working with Pam. She knows her stuff and has been there and done that. Mm. And we love her experience. It's been very helpful. I don't know if either one of you have read the book, uh, Five Languages of Love. I have not, but I'd like to. But, but now it's come up a couple of times on this podcast. I feel like Pam might be one of the authors. So I'll uh, send it over to you afterwards for you all to peek at sure. it. It's a, it's a great book. And I think that you both will relate. That kind of after talking about your innovative ideas, that leads me into your strategic planning meeting. And I don't want to start at the high level yet because you sent over your strategic planning meeting notes, your outline from what you all did in January of 2021. Thank you for that. I want to start at the lower level because we've talked about some of your successes, Pam. And one of the things that I focused on when I was looking through your strategic planning meeting is the amount of ideas that hit the parking lot. So my question is, You've mentioned some amazing, innovative ideas. You've had to have had some fail. Can you speak to when you sense that something's not going to work, how do you, one, stop it, make sure your team doesn't feel disheartened and discouraged and let them know we're moving on to the next one and we're going to have success with the next one. Can you speak to a little bit when you have something that goes wrong and then when you have to decide that let's wait on parking lot, let's get some more research, let's talk to someone else in the industry who's had success at this. If I sense that something's going off in the wrong direction and we're not making any headway, then what I like to do is sit back with the team and say, okay, what was our goal and why are we not getting there? What is the root cause for the failure of this approach? And it may be that people are too busy to focus on it. It may be that we just are heading in the wrong direction completely. And so I like to do uh, like a root cause analysis and really determine is this worth pursuing at this time or do we need to put it in the parking lot and wait on it until we have some other things in place and maybe there's a more appropriate time to move that up into the um, upper level of the strategic plan. And for example, as I look through your, your parking lot items here, you have renovations, personal shower, personal room for admin, planning, receiving admin, outside time, dine outside of analyzed SWAT, social media, all related to census development. Can you help me understand at your strategic planning meeting, how did the three that are related to census make it into the ideas that you were going to start to implement? And then how did 12 make it into the parking lot? What we did was we looked at some of the barriers that people might see moving into Dogwood and private rooms, especially with COVID, everybody wants a private room. So that's a barrier for us because we don't have that many private rooms. The Dogwood channel, that's kind of gone off. That's one that hasn't come to fruition. We've talked about it. It's kind of dangling out there because it wasn't a huge priority. And then the welcome package, that's been taken care of and completed, I believe. So we felt like those three items we needed to get in place. The other components, the parking lot ones, were things that we could fit in under some of those, like the renovations. You know, we have the private rooms up at the top, but we also want to do renovations to the other rooms. So mm. some of them we felt like we couldn't do it all in one. And I didn't want them to pick out a bunch of unrealistic expectations that we wouldn't be able to reach any of them. 
So we took the top ones and everybody voted. I had everybody go up to the, I had written them on a whiteboard or a flip chart and they went up and put dots next to the ones that they thought were the most important. And those were the three that came out on top for census. Understand. And one of the things that stood out to me is you have a topic, one of the important topics that made it is staff retention, education, morale. And one of the three ideas that made it to for your planning for this year is appreciation and communication. And Patty just mentioned that that's what she really appreciates about you. How do you all take an idea that makes it to your board at the strategic level committee like appreciation? And how do you turn that into something that's systematic and something that's going to be around for the next coming years? We tend to do on the spot kind of appreciation and focus on, if I take the morale part of it first, we are, the whole month of July is being dedicated to the staff for celebration because of the good survey we had and not having COVID in the building. We, as a team, put our heads together and said, hey, we want to celebrate the staff and recognize them for all of their hard work. What do we want to do? And then as a team, we came up with a bunch of ideas and we implemented those. And we, each person took a component and everybody's doing something different. So typically we will take something to as have an ad hoc committee to make sure that it does get planned and implemented and not just an idea that gets thrown out and is forgotten about. So I'm real big on planning and having a team plan it versus just me. Pim, was your meeting in January, your first strategic planning meeting with Dogwood? Yes. And I have two questions that I'm going to throw out and you can start with either way, with either one. Will your future meetings start to change as the team understands you and you understand the speed of the team? Like maybe your goals this year were more short term, maybe nine to 12 months. Will your next one be 12 to 18? And will you work towards a three to five year goal? Yeah, let's let's start with that one first, and then I'll throw the second question out. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that we discussed at the strategic planning meeting, that we were starting with short-term goals because I did need to get to know my people. I mean, I've been there, you know, been here almost a year, but still getting to know people and getting to know everybody's thought processes and how everybody works. And so, yes, I think ultimately we do want to look at three and five-year goals. That's absolutely. And now looking back with a critical eye, you know, you're speaking to your closest girlfriend or closest boyfriend in the industry and saying, I wish I could have done this small piece better in my first strategic planning meeting. What would you look back and do differently if you had, could swing at the ball again? I'm not sure. Anyone extra who should have been invited or maybe a smaller group to get started more time? No, I, I think we had the right people there. And I think it was the right number of people because of the fact that it impacts everybody, all departments. And I think for the first one, it was critical that everybody be involved. We may in the future take the different components of it and have a smaller group from the perspective of moving things forward. So I think sometimes if the group is too large and people aren't looking at it, that it gets lost in the shuffle. Hmm. In terms of the way that you approach it, you had a neat quote that you said, you said that you like to quote, set the goals out and work backwards. 
Can you give me a concrete example where that has worked successfully for you, whether it be here or your previous position? Yes, I guess I could use the restorative sleep program. Our goal was to create the environment of a calm, quiet, sleep-conducive environment for the residents so that they could get eight to nine hours of sleep every night. So that was our ultimate goal. So we backed into that by saying, okay, what's the first thing that we need to look at to make this happen? And like I said earlier, there are 10 components that are sleep disturbances. So we looked at those systematically, one being noise. So we assessed the noise that was going on in the facility at nighttime to determine what do we need to change. And we also asked the residents, when would they like to have the quiet hours be? And they chose 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. Those were their quiet times. So we knew at that point, okay, after nine, we have to make sure that we're the noise is gone. So we did that initial assessment of the residents' input and then the noise levels. That was one thing. And then we took it to the next one, lighting. What do we need to do different with lighting? And I'm not going to go through all 10 of them, but that was how we kind of backed into that goal because once we accomplished and um, implemented the things we needed to do for each one of those components, then the ultimate goal was reached where we had that quiet environment conducive to sleep. Mm, Thank you for that. Patty, I'd like to start off chatting about the last part of our conversation about sensitivity training, because I know you're passionate about training. It came up with many times. And I remember, I'm not going to get the word right, but I asked you, I said, what makes your training unique? And you said, we train as if we were all mock surveyors. Can you talk to me a little bit what that means as a mock surveyor and how you have that conversation? Because obviously you don't want to be, you don't want to come off as a jerk, right? But you want people to feel that anxiety that someone's overlooking you. Can you give me an example of where you've been a mock surveyor or even maybe your supervisor's been a mock surveyor so you feel comfortable on that specific day when they come in? And uh, what we do is a mock survey process is we have leadership that kind of goes through the building to make sure everything's on par as far as compassion, kindness, residents' rights, dignity, respect. So we just kind of make sure that's in the forefront of what we're doing for our residents. You call them by their first name. If they choose that, you knock on the door before you enter a room, you ask their permission before you offer any service. So we make sure we're doing that all all the time. Our kind of our tagline is care with compassion. So compassion is number one priority. And if I understand correctly, you're in charge of the sensitivity program. Did you develop it? Did you take it from CMS and turn it into a dogwood kind of focus and philosophy? I actually got a lot of ideas from a lot of people and resources and kind of put together as a document. And that's our training guideline. I think I showed that to you. And when you are looking to improve your training, because obviously if it's your passion, it's something that you're always trying to do. What kind of resources do you turn to? Are you asking Pam? Are you calling your competitor in the area with whom you're friends with and you have breakfast and you guys share ideas? Where are you doing the improvement? We kind of, I do share ideas with other professionals, other shelter workers, other PR people, just to make sure we're on par with what we should be doing. And really, it's doing the right thing consistently. Treat people like you would be treated is kind of the philosophy of the game. Mm. 
you have a customer service academy that I know that you're regularly developing and, and getting ready to come out. Can you explain to me what that means? It's new. I think it's the first time I've heard that on this podcast. Well, I think Pam's come up with another idea about customer service. It's just innovative thinking to make customer service a priority in every action that we do here at Dogwood. And with everything we do, even delivering trays, make that better by offering better customer service. Here, everything we do has to have better customer service. People remember that when they tell their neighbors and friends about Dogwood. The customer service there was just great. We hear that often about customer service. Mm. Pam, you all are doing a lot at Dogwood. How do you balance moving fast so that care is always improving, outcomes are always improving, but also make sure that you're not stressing out your team? How do you manage that balance? I work very hard not to try to implement too many things at once because I feel like if we try to start 15 different projects, 14 of them will fall on their face because they don't have the attention. The other component is that if I say I have three projects going on, I want not the same people having to work on the three projects. So I incorporate other people that are pertinent to that project so that they can take some of the load and make sure it gets implemented or planned out and then we implement it together as a team. But rather than have it all on one or two people to no matter what department it's for, we try to include other people. And I think that makes a difference too. And the biggest thing is I, I have a book and I have all the projects written down in it that I want to do. And I'm doing them very systematically so that we don't get overwhelmed because A, I don't want to overwhelm the staff and and overload them any more than they already are. B, they have to be sustainable. Mm. And if I try to do too much at once, then they're not going to be sustainable. And this is the kind of last question or two before we wrap up and say goodbye, but I'm going to ask this question to both of you. And Patty, you're going to get the advantage because I'm going to ask Pam first. And Pam, if you were giving your advice to your younger self 40 years ago before you get into long-term care, what advice would you give to yourself? I should have stayed being a dancer. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) Oh, gosh. The advice I would give myself would be that don't try to do it all yourself. When I first started my career, I thought I could solve all the problems of the world by myself. And I quickly learned that I could not do that. It sounds like you're listening to that advice today when you're working at Dogwood and surrounding yourself by team members like Patty. Patty, what advice would you give to your younger self 40 years ago before you started at Dogwood? Well, I learned early on, if you don't love your job, you shouldn't be doing it. You have to be passionate about what you do. And people can tell if you're engaged with your job or not. It shows up in what you do every day. Hmm. You got to love your job to do it. Well, thank you both. And lastly, before we sign off, if there's some listeners who want to reach out to you, Pam, or to Patty and ask you for some advice or follow up on some of your programs, is there a great place to find you other than your website? And I'll put that in the show notes. Yes, they can call directly 540-672-2611 and ask for either one of us. I'll put those in the notes. Thank you so much, Patty and Pam, for joining LTC Heroes your insight and sharing of your knowledge of the industry, I'm sure will be beneficial for all of the listeners. Thank you. Talk to you both soon. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. 
Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.